Perhaps no one knows the true origins of the tradition of gift giving at Christmas time. But many would point to Bishop Nicholas of Myra. He was a devout 3rd and 4th century pastor who served in Asia Minor in modern day Turkey. The story has many versions and is probably as much legend as it is fact. But it seems that there in the town where Nicholas lived, there was a certain father who had three daughters. The man was desperately poor and could not afford to pay a dowry to marry off his daughters, so he intended to prostitute them, which was not uncommon in that day for a man in his circumstances. But hearing of the man's plight, Nicholas came secretly by cover of night and tossed three small bags filled with gold coins into an open window in the man's house. One bag to provide the dowry for each of his three daughters. Some versions of the story say that Nicholas came three consecutive evenings to deposit a bag of gold coin. Others say that he came three consecutive years as the man's daughters came to marriageable age. One twist on the story goes so far as to suggest that to avoid detection, Nicholas dropped the last of the three bags of gold down the chimney of the man's house and that one of the girls had hung some wet socks out to dry over the chimney or in the chimney, and that the bag of gold landed in one of the socks. And ever since, the socks are hung by the chimney with care in hopes of St. Nicholas will do a repeat. But uh, it's not hard to see the connections here. St. Nick and gift giving and chimney drops and, and stocking stuffers. You might have even seen the, the chocolates, the little uh, circular chocolates that have the gold foil on them. That really hails back uh, to Nicholas at this time of year. Or it, or it might be the three gold uh, Christmas uh, bulbs that are hanging from a wreath. If you see three gold ones together, that's meant to refer to his or to honor his three bags of gold that were given at that time. These are traditional symbols that point us back to Nicholas of Myra, whatever is legend and whatever is truth, we really don't know any longer. But, and this I think for services of our purposes today, Nicholas's legacy hinges in part on a gift of money that he made as an investment in the future of three young women. Nicholas did not give away his gold in order to spoil these sisters, to merely materially indulge them for the moment. He did not give out of obligation. He did not give to purchase respect from others. Nicholas realized that his money could free these young women to marry, to be loved by a faithful husband, and to escape the degradation and abuse at the hands of vile and unloving men that might have been their lot in life. Thinking of Nicholas, I read the words of a wise economist here recently. This economist said this, and I quote, Investors succeed by giving. This is what the investment process is. You give before you get a return. You are not guaranteed a return. Your success is completely dependent on how other people respond to the product that you offer or we might say, to the product your investment makes available to them. 
putting this together, what this economist says with Nicholas, Nicholas is no economist by any means, but we see the parallels. Nicholas took such a risk. There were no guarantees. His earthly success hinged on how the father and his daughters would respond to the futures that Nicholas' investment made possible for them. Nicholas knew he might be sorely disappointed. The father might take the money and actually do nothing differently with his daughters. The money might be stolen. The money might, for that matter, be misplaced or lost. There was a risk involved. Yet the potential joy of liberating these girls from abuse and seeing them married to faithful husbands who loved and provided for them was worth the risk. In Nicholas's mind, it was worth the risk. The risk of such a sizable material investment. I think this is more than simply an interesting story. But I think it really brings to our mind the question, is my life characterized by the discipline of investing material resources in the future of others? I don't know of a parent among us who couldn't say that as they invest in their children. But as we invest in others, let me broaden it a bit and ask, is your life fundamentally oriented toward giving money away as an investment in eternity? Looking not to the future merely in this life, but into the life to come. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ calls us to pursue just that life. And I direct your attention this morning to two passages from the teaching of Jesus in which He instructs His followers concerning the importance of making eternal investments with our material resources. We find the first in Matthew chapter 6 in familiar words of Christ. Matthew chapter 6, we learn here, Jesus instructs us to lay up treasures in heaven. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. To lay up treasures in heaven. In verse 19, Jesus teaches, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Is Jesus saying it's wrong to save money? Not at all. Jesus Himself repeatedly teaches that saving money is wise and good. He praises frugality. In fact, there's no way really to continue to give to other people unless there is some savings of some sort, for the most part. Other passages of Scripture also indicate the rightness of saving money and providing for our futures. What I think what Jesus is driving at here is that it is not right to hoard or to stockpile money. We are not to live with an orientation to get as much as we can and to keep as much as we can for our own enjoyment. How was material wealth marked in that day? It's a bit different in our culture. But material wealth in that day was marked by your clothing. Styles did not change. You wore basically the same thing for your entire life. And so if you bought a really proper robe, a really expensive robe, you could wear that for a long time to come and people would realize your wealth by what you were wearing. Robes could in fact be passed on to others. But what is also true of a robe is that a moth may deposit 
the eggs there in that material, and the larvae begin to eat the cloth, putting a hole in it and taking an expensive robe and making it a very common robe, if not worthless, moth-eaten. So they would buy clothing. That would indicate their wealth. They would also store grain. If you had more to eat than just that day's food, you had a measure of wealth. And you remember even in the parable of Jesus, the the fool that tore down his barns to build larger barns to fill with what? To fill with grain. Why was Pharaoh so wealthy under Joseph? Stored grain. Grain was life. But this word, rust, is actually the word corrosion or eating away. And it was commonly used in the Greek language of the eating away of grain. So when it speaks, we use the word rust here, we're thinking always metal. It might be the rust that destroys metal, but it might be mice and rats and worms that are eating away your grain. You mark your wealth by storing grain away, but it can be eaten up. Wealth is marked certainly also by metals, and they can rust. You could also preserve wealth by storing it in your house. We find here in verse 19 that thieves can break in. The word is literally dig through. And with the clay mud blocks of the homes, a thief could literally do that. Could dig into the side of your house, creating a hole, slipping in and taking your treasure away. So it may be moths, it may be mice, rats, worms, rust, thieves. Our material wealth is subject to a lot of difficulties here. A lot of attacks. But not only is it then foolish to stockpile wealth because it is always going to deteriorate, it is disloyal to Christ whose call upon our lives leads us rather, verse 20, to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now this is an amazing revelation. Growing up in a Bible church, or if you've come to know Christ as Savior, not so recently, you are familiar with the words of Scripture. We're very used to this statement. To lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. But think about it. Jesus is instructing us that this is possible. Now many will dismiss that cynically, say that's impossible, it's just a way that churches get money. Jesus Himself, as He is teaching us, says it is possible to store up wealth in eternity. On a human level, as we make such investments, there are certainly risks. But there are no risks in God's bank. In this life, inflation and taxation and theft and decay and market crashes and fraud eat away at our money. But no such forces can touch any investment that we make in eternity. Why are we to orient our lives to invest in eternity? Verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you invest material wealth, your passions will follow. If you sincerely invest in the cause of Christ, your heart will remain focused on eternity. If your life orientation is to build wealth in this life, you will have an earthly focus. And the things of God will grow strangely dim in your heart's esteem. 
because for you it is about an investment here in this life. So God wants us, Christ teaches us, to invest in eternity because that will steer our focus and our attention through this life as we enter into eternity. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Speaking as Jesus did, he's not saying that it's wrong to think about anything on the earth. It's an exaggeration, we might say, in some sense. But in another sense, it's not exaggeration at all. We are to see life through the perspective of eternity. And it is because we have died with Christ that we can do so. Jesus Christ has given us life. Once we were lost in sin, but by means of His death and His resurrection, Jesus Christ gives His people eternal life and ultimate purpose. Now we see everything through what Christ has done for us. It changes the way we understand money. It changes the way we understand every relationship. We have been transformed by His work and His life. Now our focus is on eternity. It's on Him. It's on that which will last, not that which is being eaten away. We wonder why people are so depressed. If you live your life for things that constantly are being eaten up, rusted away, and taken from you, it's a depressing world. The other part of that depression is the realization that all of these material things never really satisfy. We always need a little more. Something else. A constant supply. But for those of us who have been redeemed by Christ, our lives have been changed. We now know that there is a greater value. There's a world that will not pass away. But we ask this question. It's fair to ask. How do we know that we are depositing treasures in heaven and not throwing money down the drain? How do we know particularly when our gifts are used in the context of a church for our own benefit that we are not simply feeding our materialistic greed? How can I be guaranteed in this life that the gifts that I give are eternal investments? I think apart from divine revelation, we cannot know this with absolute certainty. But let's be clear, if you need absolute certainty that your investment is an eternal one, you will never give to anyone. You'll never do it. Because God doesn't write across the sky, this is an eternal investment. I think what we need to do is to use our minds to think clearly through it. And we have much information to steer us in Scripture here. What we need to do is to ask, what is it that's dear to the heart of God? And invest in that. We know dear to the heart of God is the spread of the Gospel. The church has an established history. This church has an established history of investing in the cause of the Gospel. Why? Because we know this is the cause of Christ. We know that this is dear to the heart of God. And in that process, we have joined together, giving of our material wealth to build buildings in other places, to support missionaries, 
paying for their livelihood that they may carry on the gospel. We have done this by sending people to work in various ministries throughout the world, by supplying printed materials for the study of God's Word. We cannot know if every dollar is a direct investment in the cause of Christ. There is risk involved, at least as it pertains to this life. We've worked very hard as we've sent Bibles to various places throughout the world to assure that people are not using those Bibles to roll cigarettes, which is, is commonly happens through the world. We've done the best that we can trying to put the Bibles in people's hands that we know and they give them then to people they know. But we don't know. That may be happening. Is that an investment in eternity? I think it is if we make such an investment with that intention. We cannot control what everyone does as they build a building, as they evangelize, as they pass out biblical materials. We do not know what everyone will do with it. But the key is not simply on what happens with the money, ultimately, but our heart orientation and how God looks at the reasons why we are giving. Having said all of that, we have been involved as a church in the spread of the Gospel and our gifts are going to that end every week as we gather them. Another matter that is very dear to the heart of God is the care for people. And Eden Baptist Church has a history of graciously blessing people who are in particular need. We've had some unique opportunities to do that through the years that God has presented to us. There has been a long-standing history of pastoral compensation that is gracious providing for people in the context of our church resources have been poured out to bless others another matter close to the heart of god is the stabilization of the church the church for which jesus christ died i believe that scripture would support that jesus christ is pleased with healthy churches that are functional, that operate effectively, and that continue to spread the Gospel. And what you see in the ministries of this church and in our properties is the tangible evidence of the sacrifice of God's people who have invested in stabilizing this beachhead for the Gospel and seeing here a church develop that will touch the world for Christ. Jesus continues on in the same theme then in verse 22 where He says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What does that have to do with anything? How does that connect here? The eye obviously does not produce light. But the eye is the organ on which the body depends to utilize light and in that sense, then, the eye serves almost like a lamp helping us get around. You understand this if you've walked in darkness. You've gotten up in the middle of the night or you're walking outside somewhere and it's really, really dark. Your eyes are not helping you out here. As is the case ultimately with a blind person. They're not able to help their body. And sometimes when you're walking around in the dark, it's dangerous for your body, isn't it? You can get hurt that way. Because the eye is bad, that is, it's unable to see, whether it's just because of lack of external light or because of blindness. The point here, I think, is if I am oriented to the love of money, 
and not oriented to the higher values of eternity, I am walking about in moral darkness, and that moral darkness will corrupt everything I do, everything I think, every relationship that I have. If your thoughts about money are simply overwhelmed by the fundamental orientation with what you're going to buy next, you're walking in darkness. If it's all about clothes and it's all about video games and it's all about a, a new car, that's, that's where your intentions are oriented. That's where your love is. Then you're walking in darkness. Maybe the orientation is to paying off the mortgage and there's this anxiety with that or the next vacation or the status of your investments or retirement or simply constantly worrying about how I'm going to pay the next bill. With this mental orientation, it's all about money. It's all about what I have. It's all about the investments and how they work out and how my life is profited here. When that's my orientation, it's like I'm blind. I'm walking around in moral darkness, stumbling around, stubbing my toe and knocking my head against things because I don't see life the way God does. In fact, we're flirting with idolatry. Jesus puts the discussion in stark perspective at verse 24 when He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can hold two jobs and have two bosses, but you cannot be the slave of two masters. Slavery is a life orientation obviously it's a very negative one generally but here he speaks of it in a positive way we give ourselves to the ultimate master we cannot give ourselves to money and to christ indeed where we store up our treasures and where we focus our eyes is a matter of the master we have chosen to serve you will either serve money and live your life with a fundamental orientation to accumulate and consume wealth, or you will serve Christ and your fundamental orientation toward wealth will be to use it to advance His cause, to invest in eternity. We come and mark this day uniquely as the first year anniversary of our Crossroads project. The effort that we've been making to pool our resources for three years to strive to bring us to a new location. And I wonder in light of this moment in our church's history, can we know that our investment in this project is an investment in eternity? Let's make it clear, it's very possible that it could be an investment in nothing but our own materialistic greed. That's very possible. Having said that, I don't think we can be any more assured or any less assured that this is an investment in eternity than we could be with building a Bible college in India. It's the same kind of investment in a building. What we can know, above all, is the intention of our heart. And that is what is so crucial. 
It's not the bottom line. It's not the new building. It's not the amount of dollars. The issue here is this is a spiritual endeavor. What matters is our heart attitude. Are we giving in faith with a desire to advance the cause of Christ? I can't keep someone from rolling cigarettes with the pages of a Bible that we've donated overseas. And not one of us can know the heart of someone here who may be investing in a new building because they simply want to have a nicer place to gather or because they want to gain reputation or something like that. We can't know one another's hearts. What I can know is that I give believing on the Word of Jesus Christ that I am investing in the cause of Christ. I invest in eternity. In fact, every dollar that my family has given to this cause is given in that spirit. I believe this to be an effort of giving away our wealth in order to advance the cause of Christ. I can't know God's mind. I don't pretend to know all that He thinks. But I can know the heart orientation with which I give. And that, I think, is the key. Do I give as an act of faith to advance the cause of Christ? If you're not giving that way, don't give. The whole project is going to be nothing more than a detriment to your walk with God. But I do believe if we can give in faith, believing that we are laying down our resources to advance the greater cause of Christ, then I think we can give with confidence on the Word of Jesus that we are investing in eternity. Jesus doesn't need a penny of our money. But we have the privilege to work with Him to advance His cause. We must give in that spirit and know then that we are laying up treasures in heaven. I point you then to Luke chapter 16. We're called to lay up treasures in heaven and secondly, to make friends in eternal places. Luke chapter 16. We are to make friends in eternal places. We'll uh, work this out as we work through this parable of Christ and His teaching based on it. Luke chapter 16 and verse 1. Jesus says to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. That is, the servant's job is to manage his master's wealth, but he fails his stewardship, squanders his master's resources, so his master confronts him. Verse 2, And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. You're fired. Clear out your desk. Return all files. And get out of here. Now in that day, you didn't just go down the street to the next business and try to find a job. The jobs of that day were generally lifelong assignments. This man is in serious trouble. And so verse 3, the manager says to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. ESV may miss this, I'm not sure, but not strong enough is literally not able to dig. And he may be saying, I can't bring myself to dig, to be involved in manual labor, and I cannot bring myself to beg I have decided what to do, verse 4, 
so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Now, I want you to stop for just a moment and focus on a very important phrase. Verse 4 at the end, that people may receive me into their houses. So he's going to make a financial decision. He has a financial plan that he hopes in the future will enable people to welcome him into their house. There's no social security system here. You've got to live with somebody. So he's planning to knock on their door and say, can I live in your house? He's going to do something that allows that to happen. Remember that idea, to be welcomed into their house. Verse 5, what does he do? He summons his master's debtors one by one. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. I don't think he had to tell him twice. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. These are sizable debts, and the debt reductions the manager negotiates with his master's debtors are also sizable. Notice, though, that he does this when? Before or after he's let loose? Before or after he's fired? He does this after he's fired. The master has said, you are done. Yet after that, he acts. So, on some level, it seems that he has the authority to do what he's doing. Even though it's not the official authority of being a manager for this particular master. Whatever he's doing is right. It's good. It's authoritative. The master, verse 8, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. That, I wish, was one verse. I think the verse division should end there. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, the word commended could be translated praised or approved. What is he approving? And this is hard. We're not sure exactly what Jesus intends, but this is our joy to try to work it out. It could be that the manager robs the master. By taking less than is owed, he robs the master of money that is owed to him. And the master is simply saying, well, that was one sharp guy. He's angry about it. In fact, he's going to have to go and collect what wasn't collected, perhaps. Or, to put a little different twist on it, it might be that there's some fraudulent things going on here, and so he's unable to collect what is still, quote-unquote, owed him. But the manager has been sinful, has been shrewd, and the master simply saying, well, good job. I think it's a lot easier to believe on a number of levels, and we won't go into all of them, that what the manager does here is legal, authoritative, and the master is genuinely commending him for what he's done. Some have suggested, this works real well for me, whether it's true or not, we can't ultimately know, but I think it's very possible. Some commentators have suggested that the manager collects only what is owed to the master and he forgives his own commission, perhaps even some wrong uh, charging of interest. 
And so the master commends him for being so wise because the master is getting all the money that's owed to him and says that was a really smart thing for you to do to not collect all the money for you. Now you could say, well, he could live on that money forever himself, perhaps. But the master commends the manager and I think that he commends him honestly. The manager realizing that by forgiving a small amount that is owed, let's assume, to him, he is going to connect with people who will provide for him in the future. He will create people who receive him into their houses. Now what does Jesus make of this parable? I believe Jesus' teaching begins there at the middle of verse 8 when He says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. To paraphrase, people who love money and live for money are going to spend more time and attention on how to deal with it shrewdly than people who are living for God and for eternity. And so there's a lot of wise, shrewd dealings with money among the people of darkness. That is, those who do not have the moral light of Christ. And I tell you, says Jesus, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. I think the way to understand unrighteous wealth is worldly wealth. Wealth that's, that's being decayed. That's moth-eaten. Wealth that's eaten up. That kind of idea. Make friends for yourselves. Now notice this. So that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. There's a connection between verse 9 and verse 4. Remember what the manager's goal was? I want people to receive me into their houses. There's a parallel here with us acting in such a way as to make friends that they may receive us. But here now in verse 9, it's not into earthly houses. The manager just wanted a roof over his head. But rather here, it is into eternal dwelling places. So there's the parallelism between people receiving us but there's the antithesis of earthly houses and eternal dwellings. I think Jesus is saying this, the manager in the parable used his material wealth that was under his control to secure future favor on earth. I want you as my followers to use material wealth, unrighteous mammon, worldly wealth, to secure future favor in heaven, in eternity, eternal dwellings. You notice here that he says, when it fails, and it will. Physical resources will fail. There is a day, Christian, when your wealth will be gone. The Spanish put it, no pockets in a shroud, or more close to home, no U-Hauls behind a hearse. We're going to leave it all here. On the day that you leave your physical resources behind on earth, will you meet the deposits you've made in eternity? Will you have made friends with your wealth that will 
have eternal consequences. Invested in the cause of Christ such that you've made friends. If you have gathered with this congregation for any length of time, if you have given to any degree faithfully for what you have, I think we can say with confidence this church together collectively we have made many friends in eternal dwelling places. And I thank God for that. For what He's permitted us to do together. Take India for instance. There are buildings that are there that we have laid down our resources to help build so that young people can be trained in the cause of Christ and take the message of Jesus to places where it's not been heard. We have helped them to erect buildings. We're continuing to help them do this. We have been involved there in evangelism. We have paid for the food of evangelists who have gone from city to city, town to town, village to village, proclaiming the cause of Christ, proclaiming His Gospel. We've helped them, supported them, and blessed them along the way. We have invested heavily as Gifts were taken as a church to support various teachers that have gone from our church to help church leaders and in making and church pastors be trained in the Word of God. These are investments that we've made. Now many of the friends that we've made, we have no idea who their names. We don't know who they are. Many of them we will not meet until eternity. But we've made these investments as a church. We could move to Lithuania, where there is a building that's being used today for the housing of a church in a very cold land, uh, but they need that building. There's evangelistic efforts that we have supported that the churches are doing there in Lithuania. We have helped by sending teachers from here, gathering gifts as a church, sending teachers across the seas to build up and train believers and church leaders in the Word of God. Last year, the better portion of a secretary's salary we paid as a church to allow that individual's work to benefit the Bible college that is there. We can go on. And time does not allow for me to fill in the blanks. For some of you, these will be live places. These will be places that you have been to support and to help others. We think of South Africa, Mozambique, and Zambia, Canada, Alaska, Denver, New York City, Minneapolis, Las Vegas, South Dakota, Central Seminary, and others. Along with the gifts that we have given to missionaries who have gone into various places throughout the world just as they come to visit with us here. These are investments in eternal friends. And Jesus is teaching us, this is what I'm doing. As the risen Christ I am winning a people for Myself. I have laid down My life to save souls and I'm calling them out of this world unto Myself to give them salvation. You have the privilege, we have had the privilege as a church to join together and pour out our gifts that this cause of Christ would continue forward. Not because Jesus needs us, but because He invites us to partner with Him in spreading the Gospel of Christ. And here, in this place, these same kind of investments. We have invested by giving away wealth 
for the building of buildings, for the evangelization of unbelievers, for the teaching of the Word of God to go on unhindered. We continue to pour out our resources that this church would be stabilized. I have no idea what this is going to look like. But as we think of the people that have been touched in our region by the Gospel of Christ in numerous ways, and as we think of what this church has done as it's touched people throughout this world through the giving of our gifts, I will not be surprised if throughout eternity we continue to meet people we never met on earth, but in whose lives we invested by laying down resources for the advance of the Gospel. I will not be surprised if we meet people who say, your gift meant this for me. You are my friend. And perhaps, who knows, maybe they will actually invite us in to their eternal dwelling place to commune and to fellowship and to give thanks for what God used us to do in their lives as He works through us and as He worked in their lives. I don't know. All I know is what Jesus says here. Make friends for yourselves by means of earthly wealth, unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Are you living a life of devotion to Christ? One of the answers to that question is directly connected to how we use and how we view money. Are you living for the things of this life? Honestly, your full orientation is toward getting and consuming. If that is the case, you are walking around in material darkness. You're walking around in moral darkness. As we look at the Gospel of Jesus Christ, we realize that He risked everything. He laid down His life to pay the penalty of our sin. That He rose from the dead to defeat sin such that those who place their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation are given new life. This is how Christ gave Himself. How He lived His life. And He calls us who know Him as Savior to respond to the One who became poor for us that we through His poverty might be rich. This then becomes our life, our orientation, our focus in this world. Remember what the economist said. Investors succeed by giving. And when we invest in the cause of Christ, our success is not dependent upon how people respond. It is dependent upon how God responds. What He sees in our heart, what He sees as the intention of our gifts as we invest them in eternity. May we learn to give so as to make friends in heavenly places. And may that be the legacy of this assembly. That we pour out our personal wealth in order to advance the cause of Christ faithfully, fruitfully, humbly, trusting Him for the results. And may our ultimate friend that we make in eternal dwelling places be the Lord of heaven and earth who welcomes us saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. There is joy now as we learn to live a life of giving 
as we learn to invest in the future of others. But there will be joy forever and ever in the presence of the Lord as we make friends in eternal places. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I pray in behalf of anyone who knows not Christ as Savior, the greatest gift that has ever been given, they do not yet see it for what it is. I plead, Father, that You would bring them to saving faith, to life, to trust in Jesus as Savior, paying the penalty of sin and giving life through His resurrection power. I pray that they would take the initiative to step forward and to seek someone out as we break here today. I pray in behalf of those who know Christ as Savior, we pause and give You thanks that He became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. We thank You that He became poor, that He would enrich us. And I pray that that characteristic would be seen in our lives as people look at how we have spent money, as You look at how we've spent money. I pray that it would be clear that we are investing in eternity. Please permit us to lay up treasures in heaven. And permit us, I pray, Father, as a church, to make friends in heavenly dwellings. I ask, God, that You will continue to do that through this church's experience. That You will permit us to continue to partner with You. You have full freedom to blow our candlestick out any time You wish. But I pray, Father, that You would allow us to shine brightly and to burn for eternity. That the light of the Gospel of Jesus Christ might be seen in a dark and needy world. Here and on faraway shores, may we continue to make such friends for the glory of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.